listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Thank you for joining us again today as we continue to let the Bible speak into our hearts and minds. Sometimes we come to the Word of God and there are portions that we find hard to understand or hard to apply in our given situation. Today we're coming to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and the first two verses and they present some of Paul's teaching regarding the practice of slavery in the Roman world. As we seek to understand Paul's words, there are obviously some very challenging things to consider. How does Roman slavery apply to our modern life? What does it say regarding the Bible and the practice of slavery that was and is so difficult to deal with in our present age? So we need to ask the Lord's help. We need the Lord's guidance and direction as we consider this very difficult subject together today. So let me pray and then I'll read First Timothy chapter 6 verses 1 and 2. Eternal God and our Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of God that is ever relevant and ever living. We thank you for truth. We thank you for truth that is true today. And we pray that as we consider Paul's words that you would give us much wisdom and discernment in rightly applying the word of God. I pray for those who are hearing and that even as they consider this subject today, that the word of God would mould and direct their thinking and their understanding and that we'd know your help in all of these things. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Timothy chapter 6 and the verse number 1 and 2 says, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honour, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. John Newton is perhaps best known for the hymn Amazing Grace. But when you study his life story, he is a living illustration of the tortured relationship that existed in his day between the Christian church and the slave trade. When he was converted, he did not resign as captain of a slave boat. Rather, he sought to tighten things up in the boat and improve conditions. He even held communion on deck whilst the slaves suffered in chains under the deck. Only later did he regret and repent of his involvement in slavery. William Wilberforce was a compatriot of Newton. He was the great instrument in God's hand who was used to abolish the slave trade in Britain in 1807. As Wilberforce, as a Christian, sought to overturn slavery, other Christians in the United States and in Europe were defending it. The defence they offered included portions such as 1 Timothy chapter 6, 
where Paul says, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honour. They argue that Paul consented to slavery. He didn't tell slaves to rebel, but to submit. Well, to help us grasp the application of these verses, there are some things that we must acknowledge. First of all, slavery is in view here. We, we can't minimise the impact of these verses by simply suggesting they speak of the relationship of an employer and an employee. The word that is used here is the word doulos. It speaks of the slave. The text itself speaks of a yoke. In other words, someone who is under an involuntary bondage. And yet, we must also understand that the slavery in view here is not the same as that of the slave trade that was uh, thankfully abolished in recent centuries. We must give some consideration to the Bible and the subject of slavery. In the Old Testament, we do, of course, see that there was slavery. At times, the Israelites were permitted to take captive foreign slaves. They were taken in war and they became servants rather than being killed. Some Israelites who needed to pay off a debt could indeed go into voluntary servitude. But even then, it was only for a maximum of six years. What's more, the Bible in the Old Testament teaches that kidnapping men was punishable by death. Exodus 21 verse 16 says, And he that stealeth a man and selleth him, or if he be found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. Clearly, the Western practice of kidnapping slaves from Africa and other places was wicked. I say that again, the practice was a wicked practice against the will of God. And of course, that is still relevant today. Christians should be at the very forefront of opposition against any form of modern slavery. There's all manner of human trafficking, the abuse of mankind that is practiced in our own day. And we as Christians must stand against such wickedness. Can we ever use the Apostle Paul to justify such practice? Well, when you consider Paul's teaching, he emphasizes that in the gospel in Christ there, there is no difference. He says there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Furthermore, Paul is against enslavement. In chapter 1 of this very letter to Timothy, he highlights the sin of men-stealing. In verse 9 it says this, Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murders of fathers and murders of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, what Paul is highlighting in 1 Timothy 1 is that the law of God is given by God to rebuke sin and he actually takes a list of, of the most grotesque sins of the time. He, he puts men stealing alongside those who would murder father and mother. And so we should never use Paul to defend the practice of man stealing and the practice of 
slavery as was practiced in so much of the Western world. Furthermore, in 1 Timothy chapter 7, Paul encourages those who are called that if they are made free, that they should take that freedom. He is not advocating the ongoing practice of slavery. Furthermore, we must understand that there were some very significant differences between the slavery of the Roman day and the modern slavery that we understand at this time. Slavery was not based on ethnicity or skin colour. Modern Western slavery denied the dignity of humanity based upon their ethnic origin. In some cases in the Roman world, there were those who engaged in voluntary slavery for economic reasons or perhaps to learn a trade, and these these were not permanent situations. In essence, those who were slaves were members of a household. They had a degree of freedom and financial security. They held position and could know promotion. They worked in situations like education and medicine and other trades. Now please, I ask you as listeners to understand very clearly that this is not a defence of ancient slavery. I'm simply seeking to put Paul's words into a context whereby we understand those words and don't be put off by them. We can't remove these words from our Bible. We believe they're part of the inspired scriptures. And so we have to wrestle with them to seek to understand what Paul is teaching. I think what we see in Paul's teaching is, in essence, the realisation that the church's task and opportunity was not to bring about political revolution. So prevalent was the slave situation in the Roman world that Paul understood that such society had to be changed from the inside out. Paul was a preacher of the gospel and he understood that it was the gospel that changed society that a wicked society was changed from the inside out. It was as people were changed that they then saw what had to be changed in society. And that is still true today. It is only the gospel that will change the wickedness of this particular nation in, in, in these times. So with these comments in mind, let's take a moment to note Paul's directive to the servants, to the slaves of his time. He emphasizes what was required of them. He says it was their duty to show honor to their masters. They were to count their own masters worthy of all honor. Paul has used this word honor already in the previous chapter. He instructs the church to honor widows that are widows indeed. Furthermore, he makes the point that the elders that rule well are to be counted worthy of double honor. This word honour speaks of respect. And Paul is instructing the servants that they must show respect to their masters, regardless of whether their masters are saved or unsaved. Believing masters that are mentioned in verse number 2 is a subgroup of those in verse number 1. In other words, Paul is telling believers who find themselves in slavery that they are to show respect to those who hold authority over them. Now, this is a tremendously uh, challenging piece of scripture, but we we certainly should see the practice that the people of God are to be those who show respect to others in humanity. 
Now, there is respect given, and that is Paul's instruction here. Not only are they to show honour, they are also to do hard work. Verse number two, but rather do them service. And this word service is the verb of the noun of verse number one that is translated with the word servants. In other words, they are to work hard in the position that God has allowed them to be. They are to be diligent and industrious. Having noted the requirements, Paul also emphasized the reasons for this. Why would a slave be required to do such? Well, first of all, it was because of their testimony as a Christian. Paul says that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. Furthermore, it is their duty to do good to their neighbour. He makes it clear that the believing masters in verse number 2 When the slave will work hard for them, the master actually benefits. He says, because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. That the Christian slave was not to despise their saved master. He was a believer, a fellow believer, loved of God and loved by his brother in Christ. And hard work was for the benefit of the master. And so I've sought to give some context to Paul's words and very quickly outline some of the principles within these verses. But let me, let me consider some of the application that comes down through the centuries of time. We're reading a piece of scripture that is uh, in and around 2,000 years old. How does this impact upon our life and our culture today? Well, first of all, let let me emphasize that the grace of God in our lives ought to impact every area of our lives. In this passage, we see that the gospel had an impact upon those who were in this circumstance of slavery. Christianity is not just a creed that we confess. It is a life that we must live. The gospel comes down to the level whereby it affected how the slave lived as a slave. Let me put the issue in a different way. I want to encourage you, listener, to consider every part of your life. Consider your church life, your family life, your leisure activities, your education, your career. What difference does your faith make to that area of life? Is your Christian life lived for one hour on a Sunday, if even that? Is your Christian life something that you, uh, again, leave aside when you enter into the college classroom or enter into the workplace? If your faith in God and if your faith in Christ has no impact on the rest of your life, then your religion is at best defective and at worst a deception. The teaching of the Word of God and the teaching of the Apostle Paul is that when we know the grace of God, that grace impacts every part of our lives. There's no part untouched by the gospel and by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so these verses, they they show us that, that the grace of God impacts life in every sphere. And with that in mind, we should see that these verses also provide a template for employer-employee relations. I've said already that these verses cannot be watered down to simply be speaking of the employer-employee. 
These verses are dealing with the subject of slavery in the Roman world. But the social makeup of the Roman Empire was such that one man describes the slave-master relationship as the primary economic relationship. By some approximation, there were 16 million slaves at a time in the Roman Empire. This writer goes on to say that this text applies to our primary economic relationship. And what is that relationship? It is that which exists between the employer and the employee. For most in our society live within such a relationship. Most of you listening to this program will be employees or you'll be employers. That is the very basic uh, situation that we find ourselves in in the modern world. And then this text does apply to your hearts. If you commit to work, then you must work. No matter the character of the boss, no matter the character of those who are over you, if you've committed yourself to, to work, then you must work hard for the glory of God. Furthermore, it is the Christian's duty to seek the good of their boss or of their company. Often we work for our own pay or for our own promotion. Very often job satisfaction is measured by what we get out of it. Yet it is biblical to desire the profit of the company that we work for. Our shorter catechism, when it comments on the Eighth Commandment, which is, Thou shalt not steal, says that the Eighth Commandment requireth the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves, yes, and others. And so these verses in 1 Timothy chapter 6 indicate that it is the Christian's responsibility to seek to further the benefit of those for whom they work. That not only do we desire our own benefit and our own financial gain, but we will seek to advance the financial well-being of others. Oh, may God help us as we wrestle through these things in a fallen world. But thirdly, when we think of the application of these verses, we should pause to note that Christians carry the name of God with them everywhere. You note in verse number one that one of the reasons that Paul gives for the practice of the slave was that the name of God and his doctrine would not be blasphemed. You see, when you are saved, what you are saying is that the living God is your God. That the one true and living God who sent his Son into the world, he is your God, your Lord, and your Savior. And as we carry his name into this world, then our lives will have an impact upon how God is viewed in the world. To say that you're a Christian and live an ungodly life is to be guilty of blasphemy. The, the third commandment speaks that we're not to take the name of God in vain. And what we do when we profess to be Christians is we take God's name upon our lives. And if God's name is of no impact and has no effect in our lives, then we are taking God's name in vain. In the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel was told to speak to the house of Israel. You can read these words in Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 27 and 28. But as God speaks to Ezekiel, he he tells Ezekiel to tell the people, Thus saith the Lord God, Yet in this your fathers have blasphemed me, in that they have committed a trespass against me. 
For when I had brought them into the land, for the which I lifted up mine hand to give it to them, then they saw every high hill and all the thick trees, and they offered there their sacrifices, and there they presented the provocation of their offering. There also they made their sweet savour and poured out their drink offerings. What the ancient people of God did was they blasphemed the name of God, for they professed to serve Jehovah, the one true and living God, but with their practices they were guilty of idolatry. And tragically that is the case for many professing Christians in our nation. There are those who claim to serve the one true and living God, but in truth they are serving mammon. They are serving money and prosperity, and they're telling the people that God's name has no impact in their lives. When we profess the name of God, but live as we please, we are saying that God's will is irrelevant. We're saying that God's will is not important. We're saying that God's presence can't change. In so many ways, when we live an ungodly life, professing to be Christians, we are blaspheming the name of God. That's why Paul will tell these servants that they are to live in such a way that the doctrine of God would not be blasphemed. Because leading on from this, we see that Christians are to display the doctrine of the gospel. The doctrine mentioned in verse number one of chapter six has been mentioned elsewhere. It's referred to as good doctrine in chapter four, verse number six. It's referred to also to be part of Timothy's practice in chapter 4, verse 13. Indeed, in chapter 4, verse 16, Paul tells Timothy, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. This doctrine is unto godliness. The, the doctrine of the gospel is the doctrine that leads to, again, a true, pious Christian life. Indeed, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and verse number 3, it says this, if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. Paul's assumption is that when you come to know the truth of the gospel, well then that truth will so affect your life that you will then live a pious and a godly life. In Titus chapter 2, Paul teaches the servants there, exhorts servants to be obedient unto their own masters. And to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Here we find Paul paralleling the teaching of First Timothy chapter 6. He tells the servants to be those who practice honour toward their masters. They are not to answer back. They are to be honest. They are not to purloin and fraud. They are to be those who are marked by holiness. They are to live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. Well, too often the gospel is seen as a means of forgiveness of sin without having any moral change. Oh, when there is a legal change, when we come to know our sins forgiven, that has a tremendous impact in, on our morality and, and how we live in this world. 
these texts that we've just read in First Timothy 6 and indeed in Titus chapter 2, they make no sense unless the gospel changes how we live. It is life and not lip that's in view here. It is one thing to profess the name of Christ, but it's another thing for that profession to be backed up by a life of godliness. You see, when a Christian comes to know the doctrine of the gospel, they come to understand that sin is hated by God. They understand that sin placed our Saviour on the cross, and therefore we are those who hate sin and love godliness. We are those who have received forgiveness and mercy. Therefore, we ought to show forgiveness and mercy to those who offend and hurt us. We ought to have love for the good of others. We ought to value truth and integrity. We ought to show a concern for others. People matter. Speech matters. All of these things would adorn the doctrine of the gospel. I think Paul is speaking to the slave and telling the slave that he understands that it is hard to obey the will of God. I think Paul is telling the slave that though you find yourself in a position not according to the revealed will of God, though you find yourself suffering due to the sins of others and the sins of society, you are still required to live out the gospel and love your neighbour. And that is an abiding lesson for us all. Wherever you are today, it is very possible that you're suffering due to the sin of others and the sin of this society. It may well be that you find yourself under a tremendous yoke of bondage. Well, Paul is telling you that it is still your responsibility to live out the gospel. Though we live in a fallen world, it is our tremendous privilege to show the grace of God toward others. Though others are guilty of some of the most grotesque sins and though we may suffer under those sins, we can show them a better way, a way of forgiveness and a way of love. Christ has set us free from bitterness and from hatred so that we can show others that God loves this fallen world. And so it is our tremendous blessedness to show the gospel of Christ God loved this world, and God sets this world free. And we look forward to that day. We look forward to the final day, when there will be a new heavens and a new earth, where there will be no sin, but only righteousness dwell. May God bless his word to your hearts. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.